All right, we begin this morning with a question. You can see it on the screen there. What are some of the most catastrophic things that have happened in your lifetime? And if I could focus or clarify that thought a bit further, I specifically would like you to think perhaps of some large-scale disasters, natural or otherwise, that have seemingly garnered a lot of media attention, uh, that have left people shaken in the aftermath because of the severity of the destruction that was left behind. When you think about events like that, what comes to mind? Perhaps, maybe the very first thing that came to mind was the events of 9-11. This happened over 20 years ago now, and yet still, thinking about the events of that day causes waves of emotion to wash over us and to mourn at the tragedy that took place. It's not uncommon for people to say when talking about that event, I remember where I was when this took place. It's serious. Uh, even just in my lifetime, some tragedies that have taken place include uh, Hurricane Katrina, in the early 2000s, uh, something like uh, $125 billion in damages. I thought of, as I was thinking through these things, uh, that earthquake that hit Haiti back in 2010, in which 200,000 people lost their life. I, I read an article just this week that said, Haiti has still not recovered from that event. Maybe you're thinking a little bit more uh, regarding our ecosystem, maybe the BP oil spill that took place the same year. Maybe, I think in 2011 it was, that tsunami and earthquake that hit Japan. Costing something like $235 billion worth of damages. And what's not communicated in the statement of that number is the people who were displaced, who lost homes, livelihoods, loved ones, who are left behind trying to put the pieces back together. You say, this is a pretty morbid start to a sermon this morning. Well, there is a catastrophe that takes place in the scriptures that kind of mirrors these events that I've just listed here. One that, to be honest, I'm not sure many of you know about. And if you have heard of it, I doubt you've heard many sermons from this book. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. This is the second time today you've had to turn to an obscure minor prophet. This one comes right after Hosea.
The prophet Joel is pretty unique in that we know very little about him. In fact, frustratingly little. We don't know what time period he lived. We don't know what his occupation was. We don't even know if he ministered as a prophet in the northern or southern kingdom of Israel or Judah. There's not a whole lot that's said about him. And to me, to be honest, that's a little frustrating. Because when I'm studying a book, I want to know what king he served under so I can place him in the historical narrative of scriptures and say, yes, this king was reigning at the same time that Joel was ministering. And we just don't have any of that. And to be honest, that frustrated me a little bit. And then Pastor John reminded me, listen, if the Bible does not record those details, it is not necessary for us to understand this book. What we do know about Joel for sure is recorded for us in the very first verse of chapter 1, where we read, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And about all we know about Joel is that he's a prophet named Joel, the son of Pethuel. And of the things we do know about him, perhaps most significant is his name, which means Yahweh is God. And what is being communicated here in this first verse is that Yahweh, sometimes we say Jehovah the I am of the Old Testament is God. And this God is going to use his servant, Joel, to give a message to this people who are reeling in the wake of disaster. And this message begins somewhat uniquely. Look at verse 2 and 3. It's more of a response as to how to process this disaster that has just taken place. Verse 2 begins, hear this, you elders... Give ear, all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Joel is, in essence, saying, listen up. Pay attention. Something significant has happened here so important that we cannot forget this. Tell your kids about it. Tell your grandkids about it. Better yet, your great-grandkids need to know about the events that took place on this day. We cannot afford to let what happened here slip out of our memory. And you know, this is actually not too unusual from how we respond to various tragedies. If you remember, one of the slogans that is often attached to the events of 9-11 is, never forget. We cannot forget the events of that day. Perhaps you're thinking of the Holocaust Memorial in Boston that serves as a reminder to us that we cannot forget what happened during World War II, and we cannot afford to repeat those same mistakes as a culture. Joel is saying the very same thing here. Do not forget what has just happened. And we're like, okay, I get it. This is serious, but we still don't know what it is that has happened to Israel. We still don't know what the disaster is. Verse 4 tells us, 
what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And this is the setting for the book of Joel. And we're not quite sure if what he's describing here is locusts in their various stages of larva to adulthood, or if this is just four different types of locusts that have come through the land. But what is abundantly clear to us is that a swarm of locusts has come through this nation, leaving behind destruction, devastation in their wake. For a description of that devastation, just look at verses 5 to 7. Joel says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Pause there for just a second. There's a lot of people that Joel is going to identify as having suffered from this locust swarm, this plague that has swept through the land. But the first group of people that he identifies are those who are the drunkards, those who drink wine, and the consequences are obvious, right? If a locust swarm has come through and eaten all of the vegetation, including grapes, then these people's uh, source of drink is cut off, not by choice, but by consequence. You're done. There's no more wine. You're not drinking anymore. And, and, And notice how these locusts are described in their ferocity in going after the vegetation here in the book of Joel. Verse six, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Notice some of the descriptors of these locusts here described as a nation. Innumerable. They're likened to lions with their jaws. What they eat. There's just a a ferocity here, stripping off not just the fruits and the leaves, but even the bark and leaving behind only a white shell of what's underneath. Joel is going to great lengths here to paint a picture of the destruction that these insects have left behind. And just envision this in your mind's eye, if you will, for a second, kind of this eerie scene of looking out over a field, and instead of seeing lush vegetation and crops that are ready to be harvested, you instead see just these white skeletal remains of what was once a lush pasture or field or forest. Maybe you're sitting here thinking this morning, I'm not convinced that what you're describing here is a disaster or a tragedy, right? I mean, We have insecticides, for crying out loud. We just go out there with a can of uh, Raid and spray all the locusts down, right? We have food that is packaged and sealed, and we keep it in our refrigerator. A locust isn't getting in there. Locust plagues still happen today. In fact, I've included 
in this presentation some pictures for you of what this looks like. Pretty intense, huh? Like every square inch of greenery here is covered in an insect. Here's some statistics for you about a locust swarm. It's pretty standard that the number of insects in one of these swarms numbers in the tens of millions. On occasion, it even reaches up into the billions of insects in a locust swarm. Some of these groups of traveling insects can be as long as 40 miles in their pack. It, it, it's estimated that these insects eat their body weight every day, and the amount of damage that they can do is equivalent to what it would take 35,000 people to consume in a day. A swarm of locusts can eat what it would take 35,000 people to do. There was one of these that took place, I believe, in Madagascar in the early 2000s that left behind something like $2.5 billion worth of damages. I've got another picture for you here. The sky is almost blotted out by the number of insects here. The biggest swarm that I came across on record took place here in America in the 1800s. The estimated insects in this swarm was around 12 trillion, and it was estimated that it covered an area the size of California. Okay, I hope you're getting the picture that a locust swarm coming through town is a severe catastrophe. To this day, it still plagues us. And we have modern amenities. Can you imagine then what must have taken place for these locusts to have come through during Bible times and eaten what is not only your food, but is the food of your animals in a society in which you are dependent on making it through a season in which harvest isn't being reaped, the stuff that you would have saved to get through that time is now being eaten by the locusts. The seeds that you would have used to plant next season's crops, those are gone. This is a tragedy. It had to be absolutely devastating for the people of Israel during this time period. And the devastation and its effects are described for us in the following verses. Just look for a second at verse 8, where we read, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Joel says that the sorrow and the grief that we would characterize of a young woman or a newly married woman losing her husband is comparable to what these locusts have done to the land. It is the same kind of grief. And I mean, it's hard for us to think of anything more tragic than a new bride losing her husband. I mean, imagine the sense of hopelessness, despair, wondering what is next for me. 
These are the feelings that the people of Israel are experiencing at this time. What is going on? We see it's not just limited to the produce or the economics of the nation. Look at verse 9. There's another effect. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. And much like those who can't drink anymore on account of there being no more grapes, so too can the priests no longer offer the grain and the drink offerings because the locusts have eaten it all. To put it quite simply, you can't offer what you don't have. Now, now the grain and the drink offerings, they accompanied the morning and evening sacrifices in Israel. It was just a regular part of what you did. You brought a, uh, a little offering of food and drink that were to be sacrificed along with the lamb to the Lord. And the priest actually could partake of this for himself. It was part of his income or sustenance. But even more significant is that it was just a regular or frequent part of interacting with God, of worshiping with him. And for this to just cease, for it to just stop, cold turkey, must have felt what? Like fellowship with God had been broken. The thing that we do every morning and every evening, we can't. We're not interacting with God in a way that we're accustomed to. I imagine that for them, there was a spiritual impact that accompanied this plague. They're just left reeling in the aftermath. And Joel goes on to describe further the effects of this plague in verses 10 to 12. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, Joel is certainly more poetic than I would be in describing a locust plague, but I think some of his figurative or flowery language actually just helps us to see the extent of the plague here. He's not content to just say, locusts ate everything and we don't have any food left. But he goes into detail describing, even down to like the trees and the fruits that have just been dried up. And we see there's not just a economic impact, there's not just a spiritual impact. Like he says in verse 12, there's an emotional impact. Gladness dries up from the children of man. And I trust that up to this point, the pictures, the explanation of this book have only painted a picture of the depravity of this situation, the severity of it. And maybe you can put yourselves in their shoes and think, man, this must have been awful. They must have been asking themselves questions like, how am I going to provide for my family? What are are we going to eat? How are we going to recover from something like this? And I think it's appropriate to pause here and consider the question, how do you respond to tragedy? 
a locust plague is unlikely, at least here in North America. Uh, the locusts that are kind of native to our continent have either gone extinct or incredibly rare, but it's not to say that we do not face cataclysmic events in our own life. Perhaps you get a bill in the mail that you had not budgeted your money for, and it's a significant sum of money that just leaves you wide-eyed and reeling, and you are like, how am I going to pay for this? Maybe it's the unexpected death of a loved one who seemingly leaves you behind with all of the responsibility, all of the sorrow to bear for yourself. You were like, what in the world? Maybe it's a health diagnosis. You had prided yourself on being independent and in good health, and a pronouncement from the doctor reveals instead, uh, your life's changing pretty dramatically. How do you respond to something that literally rocks your world, much like this locust plague did to the people of Israel during the time of Joel? We've seen how our world, our culture, responds to these sorts of things. I think generally the common response to tragedy amongst unbelievers is escapism. People turn to substances to numb the pain. And maybe that's part of what Joel is getting at and calling out the drunkards, first of all. You can't escape this. Some people turn to experiences to also numb the pain, looking for the next thrill, the next adventure. Some people in our society drown themselves in work or entertainment or food or hobbies, you name it. Some people let grief take hold of them so that they become a shell of them former selves, they become so overcome by anxiety that their health actually begins to decline. Some people direct their emotions to God and become angry with him. What are you doing? Why have you let these things happen to my life? Things are spiraling out of control, God. Why? What is going on? And for Joel... The proper response to disaster is pretty straightforward. He's going to begin to describe it in verse 13. It begins with the priests. And he says to them in verse 13, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And we have these instructions for the priest to put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. These guys have all of the outward expressions of grief. I mean, what we just read is pretty standard for Old Testament Israel's response to tragedy. Uh, the first thing that I thought of and reflecting on sackcloth and wailing is uh, actually Mordecai in the book of Esther. When the pronouncement is made that there is going to be this day on which the Jews are going to be fair game to be attacked 
and slaughtered as a people. And his response is to sit at the gates, I think, put ashes on his head, sit in sackcloth. This is like mourning 101 for the people of Israel. And they are grieving, as we've already noticed, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It feels as though fellowship with God has been severed, but it's in verse 14 that the instructions are sharpened as to what the priests are supposed to do. We read, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. First and foremost, this command to the priests is not just to grieve for the sake of grieving. He's not advocating, hey, mourning has some really therapeutic benefits Go ahead and do that, and you'll start to feel a little bit better. He's not saying cry out to some uh, faceless and nameless deity or higher power for relief from this. Joel is saying cry out to Jehovah God because he is the one who allowed this swarm of locusts. We'll see in chapter 2. They're actually called God's army, and he is the only one who can do anything about delivering you. Notice the scope and the seriousness of what's to take place here. Uh, We see that this wailing and wearing sackcloth is supposed to go through the night. There's a fast that accompanies it. This whole ordeal is marked by uh, just a solemn attitude. And, And it's not just the priests who are a part of this. We read it's the priests, the elders, verse 14, all the inhabitants of the land, and we would conclude that this expression of grief is not aimless, it's not casual, it is directed towards Jehovah God. This is serious. Joel says the only response of any merit to the events of the first half of this chapter is to cry out to God. And there's a couple different nuances to this cry that are detailed for us in the following verses. Verse 15 introduces us to the first nuance of this cry, where we read, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And we're introduced here to a phrase, the day of the Lord, that actually becomes very significant to the book of Joel. We're going to spend some time in the coming weeks really looking at what this day of the Lord is. Here's a quick summary of it I took from, uh, who I put in parentheses there, but it's described as a time of judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. We'll look at some of those judgments again in the coming weeks, but when you think of the day of the Lord and judgment, Think like Revelation-type intense. The things in Revelation that are just like most like shocking to you, that is what Joel is talking about when he mentions the day of the Lord here in verse 15. And by mentioning that the day of the Lord is near, Joel seems to be insinuating that what has taken place in Israel is a precursor to the full day of the Lord. If I could illustrate it this way, it's a lot like seeing a storm on the horizon. 
And when you see a storm on the horizon already, you can begin to feel some of the effects of it. You can feel maybe the uh, air get a little bit cooler, the breeze pick up. You can see dark clouds in the horizon. I've heard that some people are able to tell a storm is coming by like their knee starts hurting them. They have like an internal barometer or something. You know when a storm is coming and you feel and see its effects. That's what Joel is saying here about the day of the Lord. This is on the horizon. You guys are already seeing the effects of the day of the Lord coming upon you. And of the two outcomes of the day of the Lord, judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people, which category or which outcome does Israel seem to be experiencing up to this point? Judgment or salvation? Well, certainly this locust plague seems to be indicating God's judgment is coming upon you. And thus, realizing that judgment is imminent, one of the reasons for this cry that is described in verses 13 and 14 is to call out to God in repentance. If judgment is coming, we need to repent so that God might stay his hand. And I'm not speculating as to whether or not this is repentance, although we don't see the word here in this chapter. Next week in chapter 2, we are going to see that the heart of God through this plague is to stand there and say, return to me with your whole heart. This plague has been sent by God to initiate Israel's turning back to him so they might repent and align their hearts with his again. And so we would conclude that God, in sending this locust plague upon his people, is letting them experience extreme tragedy, dire hardship, all for the purpose so that they might return to him. What, what, what do you make of that? That God would send something so hard so destructive, devastating to these people for the sole purpose of them turning back to him. Can I remind you of what Hebrews chapter 12 says? It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Just a couple of verses later, we're going to read in uh, verses 10 to 11, uh, the author talking about discipline from our earthly fathers versus discipline from God. And he says, for they, speaking about the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll look at this in the coming weeks. But we need to have a biblical framework of trials here and understand that perhaps part of what God is doing is getting our attention because there is some sin in our life that needs to be addressed. That is what is taking place here in the book of Joel. 
I think we could conclude that reasonably from Hebrews chapter 12 that part of what we're experiencing could be the Lord's discipline upon our life. And so when these trials or hardships befall us, we must ask ourselves the question, is there something in my life that God is trying to get my attention on? Is he trying to peel back all the complexities and have me lasered in on what it is that has created a barrier between he and I so that I can get serious about returning to him. I think we need to consider that. I think the second reason that this cry is necessitated, a little bit more practical, but we see in verses 16 to 18, just further description of some of the, the tragedy that has befallen the nation here. We see, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And some of these descriptions we've already considered before. There's no more food. But there is a new category of people who are affected by this, and that's the animals. Uh, Verse 18, the beasts are groaning. The cattle are perplexed. The flocks of sheep suffer. They have nothing to eat. And what is Joel's reply to this predicament? Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And what was in verse 14, this congregational cry, all of the people assembled together to cry out to the Lord, now zooms in on verse 19 to the prophet Joel. And in our mind's eye, we can see him almost sitting amongst the destruction in the ruins of what was once a luscious crop and harvest for the people of Israel. And he looks out over it, and it's not difficult for us to imagine him saying, we have nowhere else to turn. No one else can deliver. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. I cannot solve this problem on my own, God. I need you. And it's not just me that needs you. In a personification of the animals, we read that even the beasts of the field pant for you. Those animals whom the New Testament reveals rely on your provision, the birds who don't gather and put into barns their food, They need you right now, God, as the sustainer of even them. This cry is one of complete dependence on God, understanding that any solution only comes from him. Joel, in and of himself, cannot bring rain to try and regrow this harvest. Joel, in and of himself, cannot... You know, get rid of the maybe millions or even billions of locusts that are plaguing the land right now. Joel 
needs Jehovah God. And that's where the first chapter ends. We're left with the cry of the people in repentance ringing in our ears, with the cry of Joel and his dependence on God ringing in our ears. And that's chapter one. And so again, I ask the question of you, how do you respond to tragedy? When hard things come into your life, perhaps some of the same responses that these people had of wondering where their next meal is coming from really strikes a chord with you. Maybe there is some emotional strain that is put upon you. As is said in this very chapter, the gladness has dried up from the hearts of man. Maybe there's even a spiritual distance that you feel exists between you and God. How do we respond when tragedy strikes? Let me encourage you here from the book of Joel very simply, very easily, call out to the Lord. Only he can do anything about what you are facing, about what you are going through. Can I remind you what God is like from the scriptures and why he's worth calling out to? Psalm 18, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Can I remind you that God listens? That he hears our cries? How about this? Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. God doesn't just hear, but he what? He delivers. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Some of the most tender descriptions of who God is come in his portrayal as a father. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Uh, the Moody's reminded us last week of uh, the parallel passage in Luke. But Jesus says this, listen, talking to the fathers, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I hope that many of us know what it is to have an earthly father who takes care of our needs. Jesus says, when you ask for bread, they don't give you a rock. 
when you ask for an egg, they don't give you a scorpion? Is God not better than that? Our Father, in his compassion and caring for us? How about this uh, passage of scripture that has been a big comfort to myself here, but 1 Peter 5, where we read to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. I was listening to a sermon earlier this week in which uh, the guy preaching said something like, go to a rando dude on the street and tell him all your problems. And what's he going to say? Yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> come on, don't, I don't need to hear your problems. How about when we come before God and cast our anxieties, our cares on him, he hears us, he delivers us, he cares for us. And perhaps you're sitting here thinking, hey, you know, this is all well and good. But what if this trial persists? What if God in his providence chooses not to deliver me in the way that I would like to be delivered? The Apostle Paul knows this feeling well. Second Corinthians, he records for us that there was a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. We know it as the thorn in the flesh, to which he cries out three times, God, deliver me from this. And each time God replies, no. But Paul isn't left to just suffer aimlessly and pointlessly and wonder, what's happening? What's going on here? No, Jesus himself tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Paul uses this weakness, this persistent trial, this suffering to let his life be a demonstration of the power of Christ in helping those who are frail and worn down. So let me encourage you, as one of the points of application, if you are in the midst of one of these trials and it seems to persist, and it's not going away, call out to the Lord. And in the meantime, as you are waiting for deliverance, let this power of Christ shine through even what is your suffering, what is your weakness. And secondly, although not as pleasant to think about, certainly, we have to consider, as is happening here in chapter 1, this locust plague came for a reason. This is God's vehicle of judgment on his people to get their attention. We need to have it in our framework of suffering or trials or discipline, as Hebrews 12 calls it, that perhaps God is letting us go through these things so that our attention and our lives will be conformed to the image of his son. Because maybe there's something that needs to be shored up in our lives, and God is using that to get our attention and to say, come back to me. This book is not over. We'll be here in a couple more weeks, chapter 2 next week and 3 the following. Actually, two weeks from then. 
But as we conclude, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to sing a song that is hopeful, that looks forward. I, I chose Psalm 42 for a reason because captured in that psalm is like this roller coaster of emotions. You, you see David crying out, Why have you forgotten me? Where is God? These waves of emotion are washing over his soul. He even uses imagery that is used in Joel where he begins and says, As the deer pants after the streams, so my soul pants after you, God. We've, we've seen that in Joel. Even the animals are panting after God. And yet Psalm 42 ends on a hopeful note in which the author cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So I thought it'd be appropriate this morning to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. A song whose lyrics are rich, and which is captured for us, that very first verse, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Those are the things that we need to ponder and consider when tragedies like this locust swarm in the book of Joel come upon our life and we find our feet on shaky ground and where do I turn? To Christ who will hold you fast. We're going to sing that together, all three verses this morning.